Brea. Welcome to another episode of the La Brea Purveya. I am your purveyor, Pete Phillips, and I thank you for tuning in another week to go on this journey with me. I figured out what I have to do to catch up with the season two premiere. The plan was initially to cover an episode every week, but that's when I thought that the premiere was coming in November. Now that I found out it's in September, I have to cover two episodes per show. So, this week we are revisiting episodes 4 and 5, and there is a lot to cover. There is no episode 3 fluff here to be found, so let's get to it. Episode Recap Episode 4 is called The New Arrival, and when it began, we got some answers to last week's questions. Eve actually did see the plane fall out of the sky. They just cut the last episode to make us feel confused about what happened, I guess. Also scoping out the stars is Josh and Scott. It comes up that Scott took the leftover heroin and he buried it in the woods. Why did you do that? Uh, because it's heroin. In the meantime, Lucas goes looking for his drugs where he left them. In the trunk of his Mustang. According to Topspeed.com, the Ford Mustang is known to be a man's car, a muscle car, and one that you keep your distance from at any gathering of cars, which is a funny sentence. But maybe it's not so much of a man's car anymore as a group of 17 women from 14 countries have just labeled it as the Women's Performance Car of the Year for 2016. That's right, while the Mustang is masculine and has that muscle car goodness that every man loves, women really love it too. Although the car was dethroned the next year by the Honda Civic Type R. And the current Women's Performance Car of the Year for 2022 is the Audi e-tron GT. Now, Lucas blames everything on Mary Beth, so he accuses her of stealing the drugs, but we know that she didn't do it. Sam is also up and at him finally, but he's on a cane, recovering from his spinal surgery. And in a wide shot, we see a lot of the people at the camp as they all see the plane fall off in the distance. I could count 25 people on screen in the group, but that can't be all of them, so I'm still wondering how many people actually fell through this hole. In the morning, our protagonists decide that they must go find the plane. Lucas goes to his car to get a gun, just in case anything happens while they're on their expedition, and Scott actually sees him coming out of the Mustang with the gun, and he puts two and two together and realizes that Lucas is the heroin dealer. In previous episodes, I was saying Coke, and so I thought it would be interesting for you and me to reference the website The Recovery Village. While heroin and cocaine are not the same, they are both very addictive. Further relating the two substances is the fact that both substances release dopamine when binding to opioid receptors in the brain. While these are the primary similarities between the two drugs, there are many differences between the two. One major difference is the fact that cocaine often produces death in users through cardiotoxicity. With heroin, death is usually caused by respiratory depression. Cocaine doesn't have an antidote for overdose, but heroin does. Also, one of the biggest differences is the fact that heroin is a depressant and cocaine is a stimulant. So, in my head, I did know the difference between the two because I thought, isn't cocaine just going to jack Sam up <laughs> during his surgery? And it turns out that the show is right and I was wrong. This time. The plane expedition group consists of Eve, Lucas, Josh, Riley, and Scott. Of this group, Scott is the coolest. They find the chute up in the tree, and then they hear a roar and gunshots, sort of like outside of their vision, before Levi reveals himself coming out from the wilderness, and he meets eyes with Eve. 
Levi is so close with the Harrises that Josh calls him Uncle Levi. By that logic, Levi has the hots for his sister-in-law. That's just wrong. So he's supposed to save the day, but his plane lost an engine, and for some reason he thinks that he can fix it, even though the technology of 10,000 BC makes it sound a little difficult to somebody like me, who doesn't know how to fix a plane. On the surface, we find that Levi's engine explosion in the hole caused an earthquake, so the government is not going to allow another rescue attempt. Another plane could cause another earthquake, and no one knows how big it could be. But Gavin still sees the people there in his visions. He knows that they're alive, but he can't do anything about it. Then we finally see Billy and Tony again. It's a real breath of fresh air to deal with people who aren't the Harrises. I know I sound mean about it, but their drama is very complicated, and a guy just fixing a car, like, feels so much easier to watch sometimes. Anyway, Ty comes back from hunting with Eddie, who has never been seen in the show before, so I expect him to die within this episode, even if he's a badass hunter. Lily and Veronica are just chilling, reading the Bible, but Lily is kind of looking off in the distance at Billy, Tony, and Ty talking, everybody having fun, which gets her smacked by Veronica. This discipline method backfires and sends Lily off into the unknown to cry. But there's no time for crying when she trips over Eddie's corpse. Meep, meep. He died that fast. And he didn't die gracefully either. He's got veiny lines all over his body. But Veronica catches up with Lily, and so does everyone else. So they all find dead Eddie at once. Sam warns people to travel in pairs just to be safe. Because they don't know what happened. Meanwhile, the hunt for the plane continues, but our friends get to a river or some sort of water that they have to cross. Eve puts a stick into the water as far out as her arm will go and determines that it's safe to cross because waterways don't get deeper as you go further in. That would be silly. It turns out she's right, except there's a huge snake in the water that snatches up Riley. I think the writers want us to believe this snake is a titanoboa because it attacks like a boa constrictor, and they're a reasonably new discovery. But those snakes could grow up to 42 feet and weigh 2,500 pounds. And that's not what this one looks like. More likely, they are seeing something closer to today's green python, about 10 to 20 feet long and 550 pounds. And that thing wraps around Riley like Josh wishes he could. Lucky for Riley, Levi's pistol works underwater and kills the snake. That was easy, right? Gavin is on the surface stealing government files, one that labels the Mojave Hole as the fourth event. That's five total holes. That's a lot of holes. He also sees a photo of the doctor he's been working with from the Department of Homeland Security, Dr. Sophia Nathan, and another woman named Rebecca Aldridge. A quick Google search, and he and Izzy are on their way to meet this woman, Aldridge, at her ranch. No call ahead. She likes the poppin'. He likes the pop-in, too. Just popped in now. I'm a big pop-in guy. Yes. Since Mary Beth is a cop, she takes over investigating Eddie's apparent murder. Dr. Navy Seal Sam says the wounds match a lightning strike. Now, Lily saw something in the woods, but remember how she doesn't like to talk or Veronica won't let her? Sam says that Ty needs to use his psychology background to get Lily to talk because they need some answers about what happened here. The plane hunters find Levi's broke-ass plane. The right engine compressor is broken. It's always the right engine compressor, right? 
But Levi's stuff is on the plane, and also on the plane, he brought MREs, short for meal ready to eat. So the gang plans to bring them back to the camp. But before they leave, Levi goes back into the plane to get something. It's Eve's ring. He gets it and puts it in his pocket. Suspicious? You could be, because then Eve immediately shows up, but he doesn't give it to her. Instead, he's noticing that he's getting a signal from somewhere out there. Ultimately, Eve and Levi determined that if the signal could be another person who had a plane, maybe they could get the parts from their plane to fix his plane. So they plan to follow the signal in the morning with the whole group. That is, of course, after they bond and gorge themselves on MREs around a campfire. But fireside chat gets awkward for Levi. Hold on, aren't you going to radio back home? Tell them to send more help? I tried the radio. Didn't work. Seriously? There's no guarantee I'd be able to communicate once I got down here. You knew that and you still took the mission? Why the hell would you do that? It's going to be dark soon. We should head back. We can regroup and come up with a new plan when we get there. It's also weird for Scott as Riley exposes him as the person who found and got rid of the heroine. Lucas shoots him a major glare, and that continues all night and into the morning. Before everyone goes to sleep, Evi, that is me shipping Eve and Levi, look at the stars together, and Eve admits that she missed him and that she left Gavin. Levi explains that Gavin's visions were of here, where they are now, and he gives her the wedding ring. This is like an old-as-hell ring now. And even though you could say that the ring might survive 10,000 years, it looks like the like chain or necklace part wouldn't. So I'm still not buying it. At the camp, this one guy who looks like a cliche college professor, he's such a downer. He's like, oh, we're going to die. Oh, one of you killed that guy. Like, he doesn't even know Eddie's name. Anyway, Ty reaches out to Lily, but Veronica talk blocks him again. Her defensiveness really gets you wondering... Why is she so guarded? And by the end of the episode, Lily does manage to confide in Ty. She verbally tells him it was an old man. And now Ty has a clue, and he knows that Lily talks. She says that the man had a handprint symbol on his back. And then the camera pulls out, and we see that guy watching them from a distance. Lucas gets all alpha on Scott and taunts him the whole time that they're on this search for the plane. It's a shame. Scott did what he thought was right, even though there could have probably been more surgeries needed, right? So maybe it would have been good to keep it. Anyway, Eve feels guilty. She finds out that Gavin knows about her and Levi. She is always so ready to take on guilt. Guilt for Izzy, guilt for Josh, guilt for being in a hole, guilt for Gavin, guilt for Levi. She really lays it on herself. But she can't dwell on it too long because Riley spots a, like, compound that's full of huts and is surrounded by a big wall. I mean, why not head straight into the entrance, right? What could go wrong? For one, there's a big handprint symbol above the entrance. Gavin and Izzy find out that there were indeed other holes and that they have closed. So the La Brea hole is the only one that they can go through to get to the survivors. And logically, that one would also close soon, too. And Dr. Aldridge has a giant barn with a giant hole plane in it, like a second one. She and the hot Dr. Nathan... Inappropriate! ...explain that the Department for Homeland Security sent another group down the Mojave Hole when that opened three years ago, and they didn't come back. But they could be alive, too. Now, there's one plane, one hole, 
and one pilot who can fly it down there. It's time to step up, right, Gavin? Episode 5 is The Fort, and that's a much better name than Hut Compound, which I called it. We open on our plane expedition team, and Levi, entering the compound. Scott says that there were some native people who may have lived there before the Europeans showed up. He explicitly mentions the Tongve people. The Tongve were an indigenous people of California from the Los Angeles Basin and the Southern Channel Islands, an area covering approximately 4,000 square miles. In the pre-colonial era, the people lived in as many as 100 villages and primarily identified themselves by their village name rather than a pan-tribal name. European contact was first made in 1542 by Spanish explorer Juan Rodriguez Cabrillo, who was greeted at Santa Catalina by people in a canoe. As time went on, there were disputes with settlers and exposure to old world diseases. Mexico ceded from Spain and California ended up with America, and the land that they were promised in treaties didn't really end up with them at all. During American occupation, many of the people were targeted with arrest and used as convict laborers in a system of legalized slavery to expand the city of Los Angeles for Anglo-American settlers, who became the new majority in 1880. To this day, no organized group representing the Tongve has attained recognition as a tribe by the federal government. So Levi can tell that the signal he was receiving is coming from inside of this fort. And again, he thinks the source could help him fix the plane. Not that any defensive native people might be afraid of weirdos who breach their compound while they're away. And that's just what happens. No one seems home. So they split up and they explore all these huts and this temple, trying to look for whatever is transmitting a signal. Eve tries to go with Josh because things are weird with her and Levi right now. But Josh is like, come on, mom, because he actually wants to pair up with Riley and look like a tough, independent teenager. And Lucas just grabs Scott to keep an eye on him. But that signal, even Levi, do find it. It's coming from a dead guy with a walkie-talkie that is solar-powered, but he's indoors in the palm of a rock formation that is the hand symbol that is in a temple with the hand symbol on top of it. That's too much! Upon finding the dead body, Levi is like, oh, that's Jeff. Just kidding. He actually does recognize the guy because he compares him to a photo that he brought from the surface and realizes that he is one of the people from the Mojave Hole team. They went down three years ago, and this guy doesn't look like he's been dead the whole time. No pun intended. <laughs> Did he just die or what? Either way, Eve finds embers from a recent fire and realizes... This fire wasn't put out very long ago. We're not alone. We need to find everyone else and get the hell out of here. Meanwhile, Aldridge tells Gavin that he is taking the plane into the hole tonight. Dr. Nathan's fiance is in the hole, and that's why she is willing to risk her job to turn off radar so that Gavin can sneak the plane into the hole. But why tonight, they ask, and Aldridge answers simply that she wants to show them something in L.A. That's it. No details, no hints. And then she pulls a helicopter out of her butt, and they fly to Los Angeles. This woman's ranch holds a chopper and a plane. Shouldn't someone, like, monitor who has that stuff? Josh is still acting tough, so there's a diversion scene where he and Riley end up outside of the fort while Eve and Levi are up in a crow's nest looking for the rest of the gang. 
The term crow's nest derives from the practice of Viking sailors who carried crows or ravens in a cage secured at the top of a mast. In cases of poor visibility, the crow was released, and the navigator plotted a course corresponding to the bird's flight path because the bird would invariably head, as the crow flies, toward nearest land. However, naval scholars have found no evidence of the masthead crow cage and suggest that the name is coined just because the lookout platform resembles a crow's nest in a tree. Lucas is still being mean to Scott, so they start fighting, and then a mysterious bald man attacks Lucas, who fights him off while another guy shows up to fight. It is on. In the scuffle, Scott freezes. He's not a fighter. He can't pick up Lucas's gun and just shoot a guy, and that's why we like him. So they get captured. And then Eve sees a bunch of men with sticks and bows and arrows and stuff like that coming back to the fort. All hell breaks loose, and these fort owners are out for blood. So they pursue the closest people they can, Josh and Riley, and I cheer them on. I'm just kidding. But they get away, and Josh insists that they go back for Eve and everyone else. We just need to distract them so we can sneak back in. Get everyone out. Okay, I guess I'll just show them the new Billie Eilish video on my phone. This isn't a joke, Riley. My mom and Levi are in there, so we're Scott and Lucas. They could have gotten out by now. I'm not going to go get myself killed by going back in there. So that's it. You're just going to leave. What do you want from me? You're such a hypocrite, you know that? Excuse me? You were so pissed at my mom for not going back for your dad. Now the roles were reversed. You want to run? <sighs> this isn't the same thing. You're right. It's worse. My mom was trying to help me. The only person you care about is yourself. Look, I never took you as someone who was scared of anything. You operated on your dad and you saved his life. That's who I need right now. Okay. I'm in. What do we do? Give me your phone. Ty is still trying to crack the hardened exterior of Lily and Veronica too, I guess. Veronica admits to Ty that their father was very strict and she is trying to honor his wishes by being tough on Lily as well. I'm still suspicious though. In talking with Mary Beth and Sam, Ty says that he would normally use games to make a child feel comfortable and that might lead them to let their guard down. Sam says that he found a whole car full of softball equipment, so let's start a game. Did you ever wonder why softball is called softball, even though the ball's not soft? Well, originally, the ball was soft. That's it. Even though softball was created in 1887, the name softball was first introduced and approved in 1926 by Walter Hackinson in the National Recreation Congress meeting. Lily is totally into softball. She says her dad used to be her team's coach and that they would play all the time in the backyard. And that doesn't sound like the same dad, which makes me think that Lily was kidnapped. 20-minute spoiler alert, she was, but we'll talk about that later. Back at the fort, Levi and Eve are trying to hide, and they enter a hut where four doe-eyed children in animal pelts stare at them. That's a surprise. More surprising, when Eve and Levi hide, and a guy comes in asking the children if anybody's been there. The blonde kid that the camera focuses the most on says that he hasn't seen anybody, and he says it in English. You speak English? Yes, we all do. You're the sky people. What? My grandfather told me about you. 
you fell from that light in the sky. Have you come to take our village from us? No, no, not at all. You have to tell your grandfather. We mean no harm. He's not here, but I don't think he'll believe you. Hey, my son is on the other side of that wall, and I need to get to him. Is there another way out? Yes. Come with me. Grandfather, that sounds like an old man, right, Lily? Later, the kid shows Levi and Eve a hidden exit in a fortress wall. But let's not get ahead of ourselves just yet, because Lucas and Scott have been detained and tied up. So Lucas hatches a plan to have Scott get his lighter from his pocket and burn through the ropes. And once Scott frees himself, he hesitates when it comes to freeing Lucas. I mean, this guy has threatened Scott's life several times, but ultimately Scott realizes that he won't get very far without Lucas's killer instinct, so... He helps him out, too. Josh is also planning. He has Riley give him her phone, and then he sets it to play music far away from the fort. This distracts the guards at the front gate, and it starts a sort of like Scooby-Doo chase routine, because Josh and Riley are trying to get in, Eve and Levi are almost out, and Lucas and Scott seem to have no plan now that they're free. But all of them meet up just as they are on their way to that secret exit, and that's when Grandpa shows up. Yes, he is an old man, right, Lily? He's ready to kill them, but then a voice in the distance says, Stop! A beautiful native woman, who's deft at layering pelts and has great accessories, appears with authority. Grandpa does stop, too. The woman says to let them go, and they do. Once outside the wall, Lucas still leans into Scott, and Scott stands up for himself, but it doesn't do any good. Lucas just wants his $250,000 worth of heroin back. Like, who are you going to sell it to, man? Back on the surface, finally, Izzy says that if Gavin gets stuck in the hole, just like her mom and brother, then she's lost her whole family. Get it? Whole family? <laughs> Aldridge also invites herself onto the plane. I mean, it is her plane after all, so she should get a free ticket. But we also learn that if the Department of Homeland Security finds out that the plane is coming because the radar doesn't get shut off, that they'll probably shoot the plane down. But for some reason, Gavin is perfectly fine with that. Our plane expedition group get back to the camp and everyone's happy to see them. Everybody meets Levi, the new guy. Josh even has a moment where Riley says that he's a good guy and kisses him on the cheek. I think that Josh thinks this is like a move in the right direction, but this is classic friendly rejection behavior. But also Josh is Josh, so he doesn't get it. Ty finally gets through to Lily. She says that Veronica and the guy who appeared to be their father kidnapped her a year or two ago. And then when Veronica comes back, Ty confronts her, and then Veronica runs off into the foggy darkness of 10,000 BC. Levi also still believes that if he can find the Mojave team's plane, that they could get the parts and fix his plane, and then they could go home. And Eve is still racked with guilt. Levi confesses to loving Eve, and she decides to take a nap. I like Eve. I like her style. <laughs> and we finish off by checking in on the surface once more, where Aldridge takes Izzy and Gavin to an excavation site in Los Angeles where remnants of the La Brea survivor settlers are being carefully handled by archaeologists. One of the items that they recover is a letter in a glass bottle, and it's from Eve. Gavin, I wish we had more time to try and fix everything that got broken between us. 
Just know that in my heart, I am so sorry for doubting you. I should have believed you all along. Izzy, my strong and beautiful daughter, you have your whole life to look forward to. Lean on your father and take care of each other. Gavin, I don't know if or when I'll ever see either one of you again, but I know if there's some way, any way, to help us, that you'll find it. Wherever you are. Wherever I am, no matter what. You're always with me. All my love. Eve. The hole slash light is getting smaller and it's going to close soon. So it's shit or get on the plane, Gavin. Or maybe shit, then get on the plane. What just happened? So first, let's look back at some of the questions we've had in previous episodes. And let's look forward to some new questions that we have after that. With episodes four and five, I think that we can see that the handprint symbol represents the people that we have met at the fort. They wear it, they put it on buildings, they surround dead bodies with it. It's their thing. So let's just close the book on that question. Last episode I brought up, how do other people feel about our main group of people? And while we don't know how many people fell through or what they think about our main group, we do see a lot of folks come out for the softball game, and that's very sweet. It makes me wish I fell into a hole to make new friends. We now know that there may be up to five holes that opened in the earth and sucked people in. Do you think that season two will be another hole and new people? I'm sorry, I'm sorry. I'm getting ahead of myself again. We also learn that, like our team, people who fall through the hole and survive can also live off the land and make a home in 10,000 BC. This episode, we also learned what was going on with Veronica and Lily, to some extent. We learned that Lily was kidnapped, and this branch of the story could get really dark, so let's tread lightly. If Veronica indeed helped kidnap Lily, then who knows how deep this creepy situation goes. It feels like they need their own show, or at least a Dateline episode. So now let's pose some new questions. I think we can all agree on the most important question right now. How is Scott's therapist staying open without him? That guy is wound tight and scared of so much. I think that's why I like him. Compared to Izzy, he seems like the most vulnerable character of them all. Okay, really. Let's go for our big questions. Who is the main... Who is the woman that commands the people of the fort? The Tongve people did have a female chief at one point, but that was into the colonial period, not all the way back in 10,000 BC. Still, we love a strong, independent woman, so let's see what she can do. Eagle-eyed viewers may know, but I don't, because I didn't go back to watch, because I like suspense. She could be the fiancé of Dr. Nathan, or maybe somebody else from the Mojave team. In case you were wondering, the Mojave Dunes are 200-plus miles from Los Angeles. If the Mojave team members moved from their fall location in the Mojave, how do they know to go to L.A.? Basically, what are these people doing in 10,000 B.C. Los Angeles? I guess an obvious question is, who are the Hand people? Where did they come from? Are they survivors from previous falls? Or are they native people? Are all native people survivors of sinkholes? And if so, are we ancient alien style rewriting history and erasing the native people's story? That's a big question that I think we're going to need more than one episode to answer. Also, why didn't Josh play music from his own phone? Why did he have to sacrifice Riley's phone and keep his own? I'm sure we won't get an answer to that other than Josh is Josh. Are you freaking joshing me, dude? 
And the last question I'll pose, is Eve's guilt a sign of narcissism or a proof of the hypothesized guilt gap between men and women that says habitual guilt was found to be more intense in women than in men in all age groups? Results suggest that the difference is linked to differences in interpersonal sensitivity and the tendency to experience types of guilt with a high anxious aggressive component. We the jury find the defendant guilty. Digging deeper. This week we're going to dig deeper on Riley, but I'm not going to explain who she is. Let's let the actor who portrays Riley, Victoria St. Clair, give us a rundown. Riley is this 19-year-old um, sophomore in college, and she, before falling into the sinkhole, is somebody who, like, really knows who she is, is a go-getter, gets what she wants, um, is on the path to, like, really becoming this wonderful young woman. And when she falls into the sinkhole with her father, you know, everything just kind of gets ripped out from underneath her. Um, and she is lost with everybody else and just trying to figure out who she is um, down there, finding her footing down there with everybody. And I mean, is there a future for, for Riley and for everybody down there? We don't know yet. So she's trying to um, make peace with that in some ways and also fight to get back home. The La Brea Wiki at fandom.com doesn't have that much about Riley. That wiki doesn't have much of anything, actually. So we know that Riley dropped out of med school. So does that mean that she dropped out of med school entirely, or does it mean that she changed her major and she's still in school? I can't quite recall, but it does make her seem a little more snooty when she tells Josh that they are in different stages of life and it wouldn't work between them. That's a ruder rejection, but it's still not an explicit rejection, because Josh could pretend that he's more mature, or think that that kiss on the cheek could mean more. So Riley can perform back surgery, she can't reject romantic advances well, she got put in her place in this last episode, and she downloads Billie Eilish videos to her phone. None of these are why I chose to spotlight her today. I did it for her clothes. You know, all of these people fell in a hole and they've been there for five days. They're all wearing the same clothes the whole entire time. Veronica St. Clair says her character is figuring herself out, and there is no more evidence of that than her outfit. She's wearing a floral skirt like a boring but nice school teacher would wear. She's got these chunky white shoes like a responsible shoe buyer would wear. She's got this leather jacket that a rebel would wear. And underneath that, she has this white t-shirt with New York City on it, like a hipster. And she also has big hoop earrings, like a girl at the club. I also can't tell if she's wearing flesh-colored stockings or leggings or something, or if it's just her skin between the end of her skirt and her shoes. I actually hope that it's some sort of legging, because it's got to be rough on the skin out there. She'd end up with a bunch of scrapes and cuts. Moreover, I mean, she's stuck in a skirt the whole time, which really has to suck for all the hikes and the hunts and the escaping that they have to do. I don't dislike Riley, but I do wonder if the writers are trying to use her and Josh and Izzy to make late teen characters all seem kind of annoying and strong-headed. And don't forget, we still have a half a season to figure out what Riley will become and if she'll figure out exactly who she's supposed to be here in 10,000 B.C. In the media reviews. Kimberly Ricky of Uproxx has this headline for her review of La Brea. La Brea is not an objectively good show, but it's ludicrous enough that it might hook Manifest fans. 
Okay, that's a little disrespectful at the start, but we'll see what she has to say. In the review, Ricky wonders whether the show's writers are serious or they decided to troll the audience from the beginning. La Brea is an odd cat of a show so far, not only because of its nonsensical happenings, but because these preposterous moments border on what one would see in Fox's 911 franchise, which would be a little bit more serious. Yet the show doesn't really ask its viewers to wonder whether it's aiming for parody. There's no wink-wink at the camera, even as Natalie Z beats the holy CGI hell out of a creature that she encounters. Towards the end, she says, This is a ludicrous, hot mess, and as far as I can tell, intended to be one. See, she gets it. Yet, that intent never surfaces as cheeky, which is why it's unlikely to ever win acclaim. But it's probably going to attract the same audience as Manifest. This whole piece was about how Manifest people would like La Brea. People won't give a lick whether critics won't stomach this kind of content when deciding whether or not to watch this show. And if you ask me, that's the way you should go in all shows. Figure it out for yourself. So this has been another week of the La Brea Purveya. Uh, maybe you found us in your podcasting app of choice and you didn't find us on patreon.com slash y'all heard, but that is our parent podcast. And if you would like to throw a couple bucks our way, that is a way you can do it. Similarly, if you'd like to be on the show or you'd like to email any feelings, opinions, whatever, uh, then you can shoot those over to shout at yallheard.me. Again, the email address of our parent show. Thanks for joining me for this silly little podcast, and I uh, hope that you have had a fun time listening and that you continue to do so. I will talk to you next week. Mm-hmm.